Welcome to the Bjergnes podcast. Sailing the high seas on a three-mast tall ship was a dream of a bygone age, but thanks to the One Ocean Expedition, students are getting the chance to do just that. I'm Stephen Outen, here again with my colleague Ingjord Pilskog. Good day. As part of the UN's Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development, the tall ship Statsrud Lemkul set sail in August 2021 on a voyage to circumnavigate the globe and serve as a floating university and research vessel. We're joined today by Kerim Nisangiolu, a professor at the University of Bergen, leader of the polar research theme at the Björkner Centre and one of the organisers of a course aboard the ship. Kerim, welcome to the show. Thanks. So before discussing your role and the activities of students on board, can you tell us a little bit about the One Ocean expedition overall? So it was actually a, an idea that came about quite a few years ago by uh, several people in Bergen, including university, to have the stall ship go around the world and, and uh, not only uh, meet the people, um, but also do science, uh, bring along students. Uh, and then it, uh, it's also at the time when the UN has a focus on the ocean, so it's the ocean decade, uh, ocean observations, uh, setting focus on, on climate change and, and changes in the ocean. So it's, uh, it's one of our uh, contributions to that big, uh, larger effort that's international. And that effort's actually going on from 2021 till 2030. So that's exactly now, at the very start of the uh, ocean decade, uh, the ship set sail from Bergen and it's already been more than half a year uh, uh, into its voyage and, and has done a lot in, in that time already. Uh, the complete voyage is 20 months, isn't it? And it's like 55,000 nautical miles or something incredible. Yeah, so it's yeah nearly yeah two years and, and it's uh, going around the world and... Uh, um, it takes a while. It depends on the winds and the currents, and that's part of the the excitement of being on board. That you realize how important weather and climate is for sailing, uh, and then also being on a tall ship gives you a, a, a very different perspective on the places you visit and the ocean that you're traveling on than going on any normal modern uh, research vessel or cruise vessel. And they're actually going to quite a few places. It's 36 different ports around the globe that they're visiting. Yeah, so it's it started from Norway uh, and then it went across uh, where we caught it in the Caribbean uh, and stopped at several islands, uh, Curaçao, Jamaica, um, and then to Cuba, and then to Nassau in the Bahamas, Miami, New York, and then so on, and then crossing the Atlantic again because it depends on the winds and the currents before we're now uh, going to Rio, uh, and it's already left Rio. Now it's going slowly uh, down uh, and it's going to go across into the Pacific where we rejoin it this summer. But it's actually at the moment uh, going along the southern coast of Brazil and coming up on Uruguay. And apparently in the last few days, they've actually had this issue, as you mentioned, of reliant on the winds. Yeah, they've so that's, that's why it also crosses the Atlantic uh, first uh, once to get to uh, the Caribbean and then back again to uh, the Azores before going down to Rio because it doesn't want to go straight north, uh, south or across the equator because there's very little wind. So you always have to go kind of uh, depending on the winds and, and find the best uh, way to uh, make headway. And uh, that's not always that easy. You can't plan it. Uh, but, they, but they're very, very, very good. Uh, the crew on this ship are used to this, sailing uh, long voyages for months at a time. So they know where and how um, to optimize uh, according to the wind and the weather. But uh, beyond this, it's going to pass the sort of southern cape of uh, South America, and then it will come across the Pacific, which is 
over the South Pacific. That's quite a daring voyage, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah it's leaving uh, Valparaiso in Chile in May, and then it's going to go via um, Tahiti and uh, and a couple other places before it hits uh, Cook Islands and Fiji. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's four months at sea. Uh, in the end, it arrives in Palau. So that's four months from pa- Valparaiso to Palau. Uh, so that's probably the longest stretch, uh, at least from Valparaiso of open ocean. Yeah. Uh, and then beyond this, it's uh, going to Japan and then down across towards uh, Africa, mm. where I think some of the group from the Nansen Center come on board as well. Exactly. Uh, from South Africa, there are also, also people from, from the university and from uh, partners at the Biakin Center. Now, uh, the ship actually has been outfitted this time with quite a lot of instruments, as I understand it. So they're taking quite a lot of measurements as they go. Um, yeah, so the ship has, uh, it, it's a 107 or, or even older uh, sailing vessel. Uh, a fantastic, uh, probably the biggest, and, and they, they at least claim, and I think it's true, the fastest sailing vessel uh, out there, a tall ship. And um, it it is, and it comes across as a traditional sailing vessel uh, with, you know, ropes and sails, and, and uh, many people are required to sail it. But at the same time, it's fitted with uh, very modern instruments, both uh, above and below water. So it measures everything as we go through the water intake. Um, both the physical properties of the ocean, salinity, temperature, um, but then also biology, uh, microplastics, um, uh, uh, pH, um, and, and of course also looking at life in the ocean um, and, and does uh, continuous uh, fishing and dredging. Uh, and then it's a meteorological station as well as it measures uh, standard uh, meteorological observations continuously that you can actually access. It's a weather station that you can find on eu.no. Uh, it also has wave heights and, and a lot more. Uh, and then in parts of the journey, we will have scientists that bring additional instruments on board. And uh, you say this is a ship which requires a lot of people to be involved. This is actually something about the ship is kind of unique. Unlike any sort of modern vessel, Anybody that's on board is part of the crew and has duty shifts and activities. Even they have tourists on board for parts of this journey and even they're involved. Yeah, you don't call them tourists on board this ship. You call them sailors ah. or Norwegian med sailor, meaning they are part of the crew. They're part of the essential part of sailing the vessel. Uh, and you can accommodate 150 people on board. 30 are crew, 120 are passengers or sailors, as we call them. Uh, uh, and they are um, are essential for the daily uh, maneuvering and sailing of the ship. So whenever the wind changes or goes stronger or changes direction, you need uh, about 30 to 60 people uh, actively um, handling the ropes and the sails. And if the weather turns bad, again, you need a lot of people up the mast to furl the sail of sails and sa- save the sails. So there's a professional crew, um, but they, they are there to basically train uh, the participants, the sailors. So the route itself is broken up into various legs. And as you mentioned, different organizations are coming on board for sort of different parts of this. Uh, IMR, Nance Center, and of course, the university. And you're actually organized to take one of the courses from the university on board this ship. Um, and this was just for one of these legs. Yeah, so we brought about 35 students on one of the legs from uh, or. We were about 40 with students and lecturers from uh, Curaçao to uh, Jamaica and on to um, Cuba and then to Bahamas. 
Uh, and this was actually a field course, something that we've been working on together at the University of the West Indies, which is based out of the Caribbean. They have thousands of students at different campuses in the islands of the Caribbean uh, to have a joint course. So we actually started three months ahead of the voyage on the ship and did uh, webinars on the science of climate change, ocean, marine resources, uh, sustainable development. And then we met for three weeks on board the ship. Uh, all the students, both Norwegian, uh, Caribbean, uh, South American, uh, North American, uh, together for, for three weeks for an intense field uh, experience. One question that comes to mind from this is why do this? Why take students across the Atlantic, put them on a wooden ship, and teach them oceanography there? So this is a question we asked ourselves and we're asked endless times. By the way, it's a, it's a metal-hulled ship, uh, which is also interesting because it's, uh, it's one ship that maybe we can take to the Arctic in the end, but I'll come back to that. Uh, this ship is a unique opportunity. We call it ship of opportunity mm -hmm. because you can actually use it for science in, in, a, in a very similar fashion to any modern research vessel. Yep. Uh, it can even stay put at times by um, uh, taking down the sails, they actually reverse the sails. So it's a very stable platform to work on. It has a huge, very comfortable uh, working uh, environment on the deck. And it has, for us, the, the opportunity to um, redo, uh, to repeat some of the measurements from more than 100 years back in time, the, the Challenger expedition, 150 years back in time. So to bring the students, to have them, give them the understanding of how oceanography is done, how also the data that we're totally dependent on today to, to say something about how climate has changed. A lot of that data is more than, you know, 100 years back in time before the, so pre, before the, the Industrial Revolution. So the baseline of how climate was. Uh, so we're going back to that data to calibrate it. So that's something that was done on the ship, not very different from Stadsor Lemkul. So we have used that platform to, to repeat these uh, type of measurements with the students. And the other question is why go to the Caribbean? So we're bringing uh, uh, students from the global north to the global south and at the same time to a region of the earth uh, where the climate changes are most visible. They're most apparent, they're most um, devastating also. I had met with these colleagues at meetings in New York where their infrastructure, their campus was basically flattened by a hurricane and, and storm surges is also a big concern. Uh, and for uh, a student from, from Norway or from North America to, to be and understand and, and be uh, uh, to learn uh, and also hear from firsthand uh, these experiences of the people and the scientists, uh, not the least, living there, uh, what this means and, and also what are the questions and what are the potential solutions and how can you contribute is extremely important. It's very hard to sit in the in the in the university uh, in the research institute in the global north and, and really understand what climate uh, and ocean climate changes mean uh, to the populations for example in the caribbean so so this is a unique opportunity that it's very hard to uh, if not impossible to give uh, students at home and it's more than just um actually the students learning but the students are actually teaching as i understand it when you stopped off in jamaica they were actually brought on board sort of uh, high school students from the local schools and then the PhDs who actually had the opportunity to teach them about climate science. Yeah, so the best way of learning is to teach and, and that's something we, we all know and experience. So when we teach our students a new topic and they really understand it, the best way that they can 
show this or experience and, and, and develop deeper learning is to teach someone else. So what they do is that they prepare projects and they did for almost three months before we got on the boat. And then almost, um, well, they only had 10 days while on the ship to prepare for when we arrived in Jamaica and we had 100 school children on board. So then our uh, group of about 30 students were in charge of a program for schools, a full day of activities for schools where hands-on experiences, learning about ocean, learning about climate, learning about marine resources, learning about sustainability. Uh, and and uh, the meeting of our students and the local school children was, was an incredible experience. And they really connected and, and they could see themselves, I think, the, the school children as, you know, the scientists also. They can understand what what the scientist, what is a scientist. And uh, when they did this on board, they actually broke up into sort of four different experiments. Can you tell us a little bit about what they were showing the students then? Yeah, we had four experiments or four, um, four topics. So one was on sea level and storm surges. One was on hurricanes. Some more metrology. Uh, one was on marine resources. You know, how do you share? Uh, how can you uh, harvest more sustainably from the oceans? Uh, and then we won one on how do you do measurements? So how do you do uh, the oceanographic measurements and also re, um, repeating these measurements from the Challenger from uh, 150 years uh, back in time? It was more than just an opportunity for them to teach as well. You actually got to spend some time with researchers and scientists at an institute uh, in Jamaica. And I think you went out sort of uh, mangrove swamps and uh, you actually got to see. Yeah, so uh, so the students, not I, because I was busy with the, the um, prime minister visiting the ship uh, and... Uh, many other uh, local politicians, but the uh, students got to go out to the mangroves, to the mangrove forest, because one of our students, or actually two of them who were from Jamaica, uh, were spe specifically uh, studying and working on the mangrove forest and uh, coastal erosion and sea level and how to reconstruct uh, both the first defense, the first line of defense, the corals, and then the second line of defense, the mangroves. Uh, and how essential they are for uh, life uh, along the coast, also on Jamaica and many other islands in the Caribbean. Uh, so that was, uh, I think, an eye-opening experience for all the students who managed to go out there and see the mangroves and see also how hard it is to um, rebuild nature. It's almost impossible uh, at that scale. Uh, once the damage is done, it's very, very, very hard to rebuild. And these are, as I said here, essential uh, to um, prevent uh, devastating effects of, of rising sea and, and storm surges, hurricanes. And uh, you mentioned that you yourself were busy with visiting dignitaries on board the ship. And this is actually part of the mission of the ship and part of the mission of the One Ocean Expedition is that when they're in ports, they will host dignitaries, they'll host conferences uh, on climate change and sustainability. Yeah, so we had a four-day uh, in port and I think we had people on board, if not continuously. Even there was COVID, there was actually uh, possible to do this because it was outside on deck. Uh, we had the, the also the Prime Minister um, of, of Jamaica on board, uh, Andrew Holness. Uh, and it was an experience where us as scientists and the students came with me uh, from both Norway and from Jamaica and from America to uh, meet with these politicians and explain in their own words uh, their science, which was an incredible uh, experience for them and I think also a, a very important um, experience for the politicians to be able to be part of that and, 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 and learn and, and exchange uh, experiences and also ask questions. So beyond all of the learning, sharing and outreach with politicians and dignitaries and such like, there is, as you've mentioned repeatedly, 
the aspect of measuring and specifically repeating the old measurements. So the Challenger expedition, this occurred in uh, 1872 to 1876. It was four years. And the measurements from that uh, were pretty much some of the foundations of modern oceanography. Um, and you've actually repeated some of these and tried to reproduce them. Yes, this, this was actually a dream that came from quite a few years back with colleagues at the Woods Hole in the uh, Oceanographic Institution in the US where they'd been trying to calibrate these old measurements. These, these are the original oceanographic measurements that were done uh, on HMS Challenge for more than three years uh, when they went across the oceans and, and had an in, in incredible measurement campaign to really chart not only the surface ocean, but the deep ocean for the first time. People had good knowledge about surface ocean, but not deep ocean. Uh, and the problem, the challenge was, is they used hemp ropes uh, to a large degree, and they had pretty advanced thermometers. But to use a hemp rope and know at what depth you're measuring your temperature is very, very hard. And this is actually a problem you encountered from... We encountered exactly the same problem, and that's also why we did it. We wanted to calibrate the depth measurements because we have perfect depth uh, measurements with modern instruments, which they didn't have. But we're using the same hemp rope and trying to say, well, if we count you know, hand over hand and measure carefully, how many meters are we out? Can we then try to understand how, um, how accurate were these uh, measurements? And are they warm biased or cold biased in terms of the global deep ocean temperature change over the last 150 years? And the problem is you, you get your hemp rope and you mark out one meters and it's all lovely and you put it in the water and suddenly it's wet. When you pull it back out, it's all stretched and is now different lengths. It's alive. So, so hemp ropes are alive. It's not like a metal cable. And it changes uh, from day to day. And uh, it needed quite a bit of seasoning in the sense of stretching. Uh, so we did that. We learned how to stretch hemp rope and prepare it. And also whether it's wet or not, or whether it's, it's uh, you know used many times. So eventually we came to sort of a, a better and better measurements. But these people spent three years on this. How did they do it on the Challenger? How did they solve these problems? They probably had uh, ropes that uh, were tarred meaning that they didn't as much affect, uh, weren't affected by the uh, whether they're wet or not. They also pre-stretched them uh, and they used fixed weights, which we also did. Uh, and when you do all these things, then you start to get quite consistent measurements. Well, uh, the ship is continuing on its voyage. Um, obviously, it can be followed online, uh, oneoceanexpedition.com, or one word. And uh, they have a constant camera on one of the masts that people can look and just see what the scene is. And I had a look just before coming here, and uh, it's quite cloudy, and it looks like they're having wind problems once again. So... <laughs> But uh, eventually it will come back to Bergen and I understand there's going to be a week of celebration and conference when it arrives back in the home port. Yeah, and we hope that also our students from the Caribbean will take part in that. So we're very much looking forward to it. We've been talking with Kerim Nissenjiolu about the One Ocean Expedition. To those on board the ship, we wish you a safe and enjoyable voyage. And to the crew, we look forward to seeing you and the ship back in the home port of Bergen next spring. From myself, Stephen Alton, and my colleague, Ingeol Pilskuk, we hope you've enjoyed the show and join us again for another Björkness podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Thank you. You have now been listening to a podcast from Björkness Center for Climate Research. The center is a collaboration between the University of Bergen, Norwegian Research Center, NORS, the Nansen Environmental and Remote Sensing Center, and Institute of Marine Research, IMR. The music is from Lee Rosevere, Arcade Montage, BY 3.0.
The recording was done at UOB Laringslaben at Media City, Bergen. This podcast was produced by me, Inger Pilskog, Associated Professor at the Western Norway University of Applied Sciences.